The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. It's a beautiful late summer afternoon here in Palo Alto, California. I I would call it one of those boringly good weather days we start to take for granted out on the West Coast. Um, You may have noticed by now that there's a difference in the broadcast voice today. Uh, My name is Ian Fisher, and I'll be filling in for Beth Heaton as this week's host. Um, While I've been on the guest on the show a number of times, this is my first time in the big chair, and I'm thrilled to be with you. Um, We have a great show lined up for you today. Uh, Stacey McFeeters will return to the show a little later to talk about stretching those summer savings across a long academic year. There'll be great tips for students who've saved some extra cash this summer. I'll also be joined by Abigail Anderson to talk about single-sex colleges, an interesting topic for young men and women looking for a unique college experience. Uh, But first, I'd like to talk about a topic literally ripped from last week's headlines, and that's honors college programs at major universities. Uh, Joining us today is Dr. Karen Brune, Barrett Dean's Fellow and Honors Faculty Fellow at the Barrett Honors College at Arizona State University. Uh, Welcome, Karen. Thank you. I'm very glad that you're here. Um, I'm sure that, you know, we talked a little bit before air about the New York Times article that, that Frank Bruni wrote. Um, the title is A Prudent College Path, and it's all about honors colleges and how they're a great option for sort of high-flying students who want a top education. And in that article, he references the, the Barrett Honors College at Arizona State University. And I wonder if you could just uh, give our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the honors college program just sort of a, a broad definition of, of what an honors college is and can be on a university campus. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, honors colleges are housed in universities because, the, by definition, a university has more than one college. And these universities are almost always large public universities. Mm. Um, So the Honors College isn't a disciplinary college like the College of Engineering or a business college might be, but it's one that's dedicated to overall academic excellence, um, often looking to um, help the students move beyond their disciplinary boundaries. Um, They have more stringent academic requirements than the general admission requirements. Um, The... What we all um, offer is we have a small liberal arts college environment in the Honors College, but it's in the middle of what is usually, certainly the case with ASU, a major research university. So you have the resources of a major research 
university at your fingertips, but you also have the feel of a smaller, um, more personal liberal arts education. Yeah, that's that's great. That's usually the way that I talk about it with students is they're thinking through this as a possible option. Um, if if I'm a student at an honors college at Barrett, uh, you know, for example, uh, do I have access to the same majors and academic programs as other students on the university would have access to? Or am I limited in some way or restricted in some way by being affiliated with the Honors College? You, there are no limits to what you can major in. You have uh, identical access as everyone else. And in fact, one of the things that we do at Barrett, which we're very proud of, is that we can help students um, devise um, their own major or come up with a double major or even a triple major that really speaks to what the student wants to do. Um, so there are no limits. That's really interesting. Um, and, you know, the way that you at least have talked about it here and have talked about it in our conversations before as an instructor at Barrett, it seems like you have a very close relationship with students, which I think is something that, you know, typically is not characteristic of a major university. You know, students get sort of the image of if I go to ASU, which has, I think, 66,000 undergrads, I'm mostly going to be spending time in a large lecture hall, and my relationships with my teachers are going to be somewhat impersonal. Uh, but the way that you're describing it sounds a lot different, that the, the relationship is, between students and different. teachers is different. Um, one of the underlying principles at Barrett um, is that sustained relationships with faculty members are one of the surest indicators for academic success for a student and beyond. And so we really try to provide that um, through extra advising, honors faculty advisors. Uh, there's a first-year seminar that's capped at 21. Um, and all honors classes, at least at Barrett, and I think other honors colleges follow a similar pattern, are capped at 25. So you really will um, get to know not only the faculty that's housed in Barrett, and we do have a faculty housed in Barrett, but you will have the opportunity to build relationships with all of your faculty, which, because it's a major research university, is going to include uh, MacArthur Genius Grant Award winners, Nobel Prize winners, things like that. Yeah, that's so. How how many students are there in at the Barrett Honors College? I we have hit this and surpassed the six thousand mark this year, and we are under um, strong encouragement from our president, Michael Crow, to grow to about 8,000. Um, ASU is a very large university, and we want to be as inclusive as we can, and we want to serve as many people as we can. Yeah, 6,000, I mean, for me, you know, having attended Reed College in Portland, Oregon, 6,000 sounds like a lot because I went to a school with only 1,400 students. But I think for most of the students that I talk to, 6,000 for their, as far as their definition goes, is small. That that's, that's a pretty small community. It's, this, it's the size approximately of most of the Ivies, maybe even a little bigger. You should also remember that we have four campuses. Um, so that 6,000 is spread over four campuses. 
Uh, interesting. Um, how do students go about developing community within the context of their honors college? They've got faculty that are sort of dedicated to them that provide extra advising. But what would you say that students are doing amongst themselves to develop a collaborative sort of um, involved community outside of the classroom? Well, um, we are a residential college. So um, the Barrett students live together, eat together. Um, we have very strong um, program, programmatic staff. Um, so there are are groups that are student groups that are only for Barrett that address everything from, you know, a book club to a robotics club. Uh, we have a choir, you know. So um, <laughs> it's not hard to build community within Barrett. Um, what we also can offer students is the, the cultural and the social stuff of a large major university. We're Pac-12 Division One. So if you're a sports fan, you're going to get to go to a lot of really good games or maybe even participate in, in um, some of the sports programs. A lot of Barrett students are involved in ASU student government. So the trick is to narrow it down to what really appeals to you because the, the opportunities are more than you could take advantage of. Yeah, that's terrific. I think that's one of the biggest complaints that students have about the small college experience when they're going through the process of researching schools and finding that best fit for them is they'll say, wow, I really like this smaller school and the way that it feels, but I'm excited to be able to tailgate before football games and right. go to basketball games and sit in the student section. And, you know, this is something that I think, you know, Barrett is roughly the size of, of the Ivies. It's, it's roughly the size of the undergraduate population at Stanford, uh, but is not um, limited by you know the the number of students there uh, in terms of having access to those different kinds of experiences. Um, That's absolutely and right, and and the experiences are both academic because you'll get to help um, your professors do research, and they're non-academic in that there's there are a lot of so- social and cultural opportunities. So when, when often I talk about research universities, the, you know, the conversation is that faculty members are really heavily engaged in, re- engaged in research, that there's a research mission affiliated with that particular university. Um, you know, both my parents are professors at ASU, and I know that they're, they're mm-hmm. heavily engaged in the research process there. And, and so when a lot of students talk about wanting a big university, they talk about it from the perspective of research experience. And sometimes I have to pull them back a little bit and say, you know, just because this is a research one university doesn't mean that you are the one doing research. Um, Can you talk a little bit about maybe the differences in research experience for students at an honors college uh, versus students who might be sort of a general, you know, part of the general population at ASU? It has been my experience and, and one of my functions at Barrett is to uh, be a liaison with the disciplinary faculty who want to work with honor students. It has been my experience that virtually every professor you meet wants to work with bright, motivated students. When it's a Research One university, they don't always have the institutional structures and the institutional support to do that. And that's one thing that we at Barrett provide for them. We have uh, 
one of the ways that they get honors credit is to take an honor, uh, take a regular class, let's say it's a physics class, but you take an honors enrichment contract. You sign up for that with the professor. And I want to emphasize that it's enrichment, not extra work. So when you take a, an honors enrichment contract, the idea is that you will have sustained interaction with the professor. Often that is uh, being in their lab, helping them collate research. Sometimes it's um, thinking about pedagogical issues. Not too long ago, we had a professor who had six or seven honors contracts in a, in a big lecture course, and he had been instructed to um, make the class available online in the coming semester. So he and his honor students who were taking the class met weekly and talked about the best strategies um, to bring this information to students who were going to be taking it online, what would work, what didn't work. So the student gets experience, and the professor, it's not just, oh, I'll grade an extra paper and I'll give you honors credit. There really is interaction and exchange of ideas between student and faculty. Yeah, and and these days, you know, a lot of students aren't just thinking about where they want to go for undergraduate work, but they're considering graduate school options. They're looking into medical school. Maybe they want to go to law school. And I often tell them that, you know, it's not always about where you go to school, but it's about how you engage with the academic community, the connections you make with faculty members who are ultimately writing your letters of recommendation, uh, you know, the research experience that you can point to so that, you know, graduate faculty can say, hey, we know that, that she knows how to do this stuff because she's, she's got it right here on her CV. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, outcomes for Barrett graduates, where they're going, what they're doing after they finish uh, up with the Honors College? Well, they're, they're doing everything. Um, we have students every year get into uh, the top law schools, for example, Harvard, Michigan, Stanford. Um, we have students get into the top medical schools. We have students who go into Ph.D. programs in the humanities and the sciences, and then we have students who... Um, go on to um, the Peace Corps or, or on to their profession. Sometimes, you know, a lot of them just go out and get the job that they want. So we have a, a, a success rate comparable to anyone's in that area. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about letters of recommendation. Um, students, when they get into... They, they get into the college they want to get into largely because of a GPA. So they're very focused on their GPA. But when you go to graduate school or professional school, everybody's GPA is good. What admissions committees are looking for are letters of recommendation from people uh, who are recognized in the field and specific letters of recommendation uh, that say more than, you know, so-and-so is a good person and a hard worker. Um, if you have a letter that says, well, so-and-so was my research assistant, and this is what we did, and this is what we published, and I also know that so-and-so is minoring in something else, that letter means a lot. It goes a long way towards getting to the next level. 
Definitely. And if, if this sounds familiar to our listeners, it's because a lot of the process that you go through for graduate school admissions is very similar to the process that you go through for undergraduate admissions. It's yes, not it just about your GPA and your test scores. It's also about the impact you make on your community and who speaks on your behalf. Um, you know, I wanted to throw out a couple of statistics just for our listeners who might not be as aware of, of Barrett, um, that Barrett actually has more National Merit Scholars than MIT, Duke, mm-hmm. Brown, Stanford, or UC Berkeley, and just within the Honors College at, at ASU. Um, That's correct. But if you look at the average ACT, it's it's a 29. And mm-hmm. that's below sort of where the, the middle 50% range is going to be for a place like MIT, where it's 34 to 36 for the ACT. And this, I think, is instructive for, for parents and students who might be saying, well, the test scores are lower there, so I don't know if it's as good. You know, everything well, that you're hearing here around Barrett shows that it is an excellent, excellent academic experience. Some of that has to do with our admissions uh, process and admission standards. Can we, you talk a little bit about, about how you go through admissions? Um, we do not have people that only read, uh, admissions people who all they do is read applications. We form committees, um, and there are always at least two faculty on every committee, mm. and we go through the applications. And, of course, we're looking at GPA and test scores, but we're also looking for a well, well-rounded um, not just culturally, but academically. So if you're, if you're going to go into the engineering college, but we see you've taken some British Lit courses or you have um, some experience in art history or you've been um, a docent at, at one of the museums, we're looking for intellectual well-roundedness. We also have more um, Hispanic national scholars than any other institution. We mm-hmm. take diversity seriously. Um we also and that, that makes for a great uh, academic experience and a great community experience for, for all yes. students who are involved. Yes. Um, we have identified some populations that have the intellectual muster to make it in Barrett and have the financial resources because one thing about an honors college, it's much less expensive. But right. for other cultural reasons, these populations may struggle. Um, first generation um, international students, uh, non-traditional students who are, you know, returning. Um, and so we have instituted programs to support these people so that they can succeed in Barrett um, as well. That's, that's great. And we're just about out of, out of time here for today. So I want to thank you very much, Karen, for, for your time. Um, and just put in a plug there for students who are looking for an Ivy caliber experience at a public university that an honors college can be a way to go. So thank you very much, Karen, for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. So we're going to take a short break, but when we return, we'll talk you through everything you need to know about men's and women's colleges. So don't touch that radio dial. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Inside Out is the voice of the inner revolution that is bringing positive change to our planet. Discover the amazing transformations already taking place from faraway lands to right here under our noses. Meet guests who are shaking things up for the better and gain insights and courage to help you become all that you can be. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inside Out, The Inner Revolution airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go, on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before the break, our next segment is all about single-sex institutions. Uh, There are only a handful of men's and women's colleges in the United States, but they're still an important part of the higher ed landscape and a terrific option, sometimes the best option, for many students. My next guest, Abigail Anderson, was a senior admissions officer at Reed College and is an alumna and former staff member of the Emma Willard School, which is an all-girls boarding school in Troy, New York. Welcome, Abigail. Hi, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. Um, so Abigail uh, and I worked together at Reed, and when she interviewed for the Reed position, we asked a lot of our interviewers to come in and give a presentation on an institution that they know really well. And I remember that Abigail came in and talked about the Emma Willard School highlighting in particular the value of women's education uh, for young women and also for women at college age. Uh, and it was, she did a great job. She got hired. Um, but uh, Abigail, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about sort of your perspective on the value of um, a single-sex education, particularly for women. Absolutely. And as you well know, Ian, this is a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. Because, as you mentioned, I am the alumnus of an all-girls institution and also had the opportunity to work in an admission office at an all-girls high school, as you mentioned, Emma Willard School. And so when I talk about single-sex education, and particularly single-sex education for women and for girls, 
I like to hit three main points. And the first of which is that a student going to an all-girls school or an all-women's institution is entering a school with a rich history of teaching young women. And this is a school that has specifically developed with a focus on education, developing collaboration, and camaraderie. So, for example, in an all-girls school, teaching methods would be geared specifically toward the adolescent female brain, which science tells us is predominantly collaborative. So, in that type of scenario, all classes are often taught in a roundtable style or in what many schools call the Harkness method. The second point that is really important and probably the most important point for further leadership opportunities is that this is an institution that's going to develop students in terms of a strong, empowered, and independent voice. Um, So peer pressure and stigmatization around that smart girl stereotype is something that just doesn't happen when you're only surrounded by other driven young men or other driven young women. So, for example, with only girls in the running for a leadership position, you're going to have a place where young women are really pushed into developing leadership qualities and self-confidence. Yeah, and and I think... Well, I wanted to one thing that that I also know about women's colleges is that women attending women's colleges are are about one and a half times more likely to major in math and science or in Mm -hmm. uh, pre-med than they would if they were at a co-ed school. And I think that part of that is is just having that confidence and support uh, to be able to sort of go out and and take on those challenging fields uh, within the context of a women's college. Absolutely. And for me, the most important part, and the third thing I always talk about, is this development of support structures, a feeling of maybe sisterhood or brotherhood, a camaraderie, um, but also having this feeling of support at the faculty and staff level as well. So students at women's colleges report being in touch more often with their faculty and administrators than their counterparts at co-ed institutions. And that speaks to the statistic you're speaking about, too, of being able to dive into a field that might otherwise be seen as male, uh, male-dominated or heavy. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you used the term um, sisterhood and, and brotherhood. Um, as I was looking into uh, men's colleges, there are actually just three four-year liberal arts men's-only institutions in the country, um, and those are uh, Morehouse, which is a, a historically black college uh, down in Atlanta, uh, Wabash, which is in Indiana, and then hampton Sydney College in Virginia. And one of the sort of predominant messages coming out of the marketing materials for these schools is this concept of brotherhood of Mm -hmm. connecting with your peers, of developing meaningful, lifelong relationships with those around you, um, and particularly focusing on leadership. Um, I think Morehouse is probably one of those schools that really talks about developing young leaders. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. is actually an alumnus of Morehouse College, um, and, and I think that that sort of spirit is a huge part of why young men might choose to attend Um, Morehouse. Uh, When you think about sort of young women that you know who are in high school, um, what would you tell them uh, in order to get them to think about, you know, a women's college as an option? I know it's something that 
you know, you have these three key points that you want to talk through. But often students in high school can be a, b- a little reluctant to think about a single-sex institution. Um, what's your message for someone who doesn't know much about women's college but might be interested in, in, in benefit from that experience? Absolutely. I think there are a lot of myths surrounding single-sex education, maybe that you're going to be unprepared for the co-ed real world or that you'll have no social life. And I think um, the, the, many of those myths are easily busted the moment you decide to click through to an all-women's college's website. Many of the schools are working in consortiums. So, for example, Smith works with the Five College Consortium in Western Massachusetts, and Simmons works with the Colleges of the Fenway Consortium. Um, You're not going to a nunnery. Many of the faculty staff are male. Um, And, again, you have that consortium. I like to focus on the idea that the academic environment is going to be single sex, is going to be, in the example you gave me, in all women, but your social life is going to be much beyond the academic setting of all women. It will include the town that you're in, the consortium that you're in, your faculty, your staff, maybe your off-campus or on-campus job. And so that the, the idea, again, is focus on being in an all-women's classroom and then bringing those skills you develop there out into the wider world. Definitely. And there are even cases, I think, where cross-registration is happening, like you mentioned at at Smith. Also, Scripps College down in Southern California is a member of the Claremont Institutions. And I was was visiting Scripps back in November and walking through campus one evening and and peeked into a classroom um, from from outside. And I saw two men in there along with four young women um, taking a class together. And I assume that, of course, those men came from Pomona or Pitts or Claremont McKenna or Harvey Mudd. But the classroom actually had uh, was you know multiple uh, sexes there uh, in that room and and so I think that the idea that you go off to a women's college to be isolated from from men or you go to men's college to be isolated from women just doesn't hold up in terms of the actual lived experience that these students are having. Absolutely not. I totally agree with you. So admissions officers, you know, for these institutions, I think probably have a really strong sense of the kind of student that's going to be successful on that campus. They probably are very good at identifying the attributes or characteristics that a student can demonstrate through the application that will make them successful at women's colleges. Um, What are some of the things that uh, either young women who are interested in women's college and, and, you know, might want to cultivate or that young women might have that would show that they would be very successful at a women's college? Absolutely. So a a great question. And at any school that I or you have read for, we're always looking for those kind of traits that are going to serve a student well on on our campus. So I think that students who are looking at women's colleges in particular are going to want to be able to demonstrate that they are curious and um, inquisitive and maybe even pioneering. Um, that they're not afraid to do something difficult or different, to do something maybe really impressive. Because going to a women's school, um, there are only about 45 in the country, is going to be different. Going to an all-male school, as you mentioned, Ian, there are only three four-year institutions for men in the country. Exactly. Very different, very difficult. 
You'll want to be able to demonstrate that you're okay with that and that maybe you even thrive in that type of scenario. Another really important piece at many of these schools is going to be communication and your ability to articulate an idea. Many of these schools, not all of them, but the vast majority of them are small liberal arts schools with small to medium student populations and small class sizes. And so there are going to be schools that, of course, have lots of personalized attention from professors and campus admins. They're also really focused on sharpening those reading, writing, uh, critical, and analytical thinking skills. So communication is a really important attribute for a competitive applicant. And then, of course, you do need to be able to articulate why a women's college or why a men's college is a good fit for you. Please don't just assume that this school that you're applying to is going to be like any other school that you apply to. There is one huge red flag making it different, and that is that it's single sex. And you should address that and address why you want to be in that environment. Yeah, I think that that's something that we talk about all of the time with supplemental essays that are school specific. It's something that we'll be covering on the radio show uh, coming up over the next couple of months is, is how to address school specific supplemental essays. And I think for single sex institutions, this is particularly important because you are uh, declaring through your application that you're interested in a very unique type of experience. And I think both understanding what that is and what that reality will be for you, and also the way that you can contribute to it, I think is really, really important uh, for students to be able to do with their their writing. Um, there also, you know, there are major differences between women's colleges as well. I mean, it's not as though a Smith is the same as Wellesley, is the same as Scripps. And I think if you look at Wabash and Morehouse, you know, one's rural Midwestern, the other is in the South and is a historically black college. There are major differences. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can't sort of box in these single sex colleges into sort of being the same type of experience. Um, What about outcomes? When you think about sort of the value of of coming out of an experience at a women's college or a men's college, what are those students, those graduates, better prepared to do uh, as they move on through the rest of their academic career or even their professional career? So, as you mentioned right at the outset, you know, women who attend an all-women's college are one and a half times more likely to major in math or science in those STEM fields. They're also two times more likely to go on to medical school and earn a doctoral degree. So, in terms of hard statistics like that, Um, There are some great outcomes for women in going to women's colleges. A little more intangible, though, in terms of outcomes from both men's and women's colleges are the level of self-awareness that's developed in a student, the level of confidence that they develop. And again, I do want to come back to that idea of sisterhood or brotherhood. So I have a very close friend who attended an all-women's school, and she has an incredible network in her alumni body, Um, people who she has a regular book club with, they get together, they have dinner across generations, people who have helped her become aware of job opportunities or volunteering. So on top of having really incredible outcomes in terms of developing leadership skills, 
um, writing skills, confidence. You also have this intangible uh, outcome of having that community that you developed maybe on a small campus in rural western Massachusetts or out in the Midwest, um, but you also have this community that spans generations and the globe as well. And people feel a real affinity for others who have attended either their institution or in the case, and I say this from my own experience in terms of single-sex education, other women who meet other women, having gone to one of these schools, develop a strong affinity for one another right away and an immediate bond. And that becomes a really great, lovely outcome. Yeah, and that's, that's actually something that I recognized uh, between you and, and our colleague Lydia uh, in our office mm-hmm. who went to Smith. Um, you know, you, you went to Colby for your undergraduate uh, uh, experience, which is obviously a co-educational institution. Yeah. But you and Lydia got together all the time to talk about how great single-sex institutions were and how what an option they could be for, uh, for young women to be able to have those opportunities. And it was sort of like the two of you had this understanding of a certain type of experience that um, that not a lot of other people get to have. Um, and, and we talk about that, you know, with liberal arts education. We talked about that a little bit in the last segment about honors colleges. But if you're thinking about college, not just as being about manufacturing a degree and then using it to go get a job, but also all of the other intangible qualities that you get through the development of community, um, I, I think that women's colleges are particularly good at, at pushing these things forward, and, and so are the, the men's colleges that we've discussed here as well. Um, what would you say uh, to a student who you know, says, all right, I'm interested, I'll go check it out, I'm still skeptical. Uh, what kind of questions should a student ask when they go and visit a campus? What should they be looking for? How should they get, engage in research for women's colleges or men's colleges in particular? Well, a great resource right off the bat for women's colleges is uh, womenscolleges.org, which is owned and operated by the Women's College Coalition. And they have a great website where you can search based on your own interest, um, meet actual students virtually who are attending these schools, and then just learn more about single-sex education. The men's colleges don't have quite the same type of coalition, but there are just about uh, the three of them that we discussed. And then there is a two-year option that we haven't talked about today, but for students who are interested, there's also the two-year college, Deep Springs, in California that is uh, two years, and then you transfer to a four-year college in general, and that's all men's as well. So you can check out those four websites, Wabash, Hampton, Sydney, and Morehouse, and then Deep Springs, or use the Women's College Coalition. And again, that's womenscolleges.org. One website that I stumbled upon while I was preparing for this was the Simmons website. And Simmons does a great job of answering those questions that you might be too scared to ask on a college tour. And so I think the best thing you can do is ask every single question and don't be nervous. It's okay to ask, will there be boys? Am I going to um, not be able to speak in front of men in the workplace? Um, Ask the tough questions. Get in there. Ask the students why they chose Simmons, if they would 
or the women's college that they attend, ask them if they would change their decision, what they wish they had, what they wish they didn't have. And again, the tour guides are there not to report back to the office about what you did and didn't ask. They're there to really answer your questions. So, for example, Simmons has that great um, video on their website for students asking the tough questions. See if your school has that. And if they don't ask the tough questions, either when you're on campus or shoot someone an email, whether it's your regional counselor or a student who's employed by the admission office. Exactly. I think that's great advice, whether you're talking about women's colleges or any type of unique experience in general. Uh, thank Absolutely. you so, so much, Abigail, for your time here today. Uh, it was great speaking with you. I'm so glad that you could stop by. Thanks for having me. Uh, when we get back, we'll turn our attention to summer earnings and savings uh, for some great sense on stretching your dollars. Sorry for that. Stick around. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that summer can be a great time to get out and make an extra buck. Uh, Over the long break between May and September, students can gain valuable professional experience and a little extra money for their pockets. Uh, But how do you make that summer cash last throughout the year? Joining me is Stacy McFeeters, Director of College Finance here at College Coach. Uh, welcome back to the show, Stacy. Thanks so much for having me, and it's a pleasure. 
Yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about just stretching summer earnings. You go out there, you've sort of you know busted your hump all summer working a job, uh, and now you're going back to, to school in the fall and your job's ending. So what are some strategies that you would recommend for students to make sure that that cash isn't gone in the first couple of weeks of school? That's a great question. And it's funny because in all my years in, in working in financial aid offices, I think we dealt with this question more times than we actually expected that we, that we did. Um, I think obviously the first assumption is that some money has been saved over the summer. Um, so, you know, maybe we, we probably should have had part of this conversation a few months ago. But, you know, I think one of the a really good objective for, for every family is to consider at the beginning of the summer, how much do we really need to consider that needs to go into savings um, during the course of, of, of the summer and, and hoping that everything doesn't get spent on, you know, weekend beach trips and, and all of those other things. But assuming that we have, in fact, saved some money during the summer, it's a really good idea to, to identify, you know, how much of that money needs to be used for expenses while at school. Um, you know, is the family planning for the student to be responsible for certain things? Is the money going to last just from you know, September to December with the hope that there might be some work during the winter break, um, probably not enough. So it's really a good idea to do that ever popular thing that, that those of us in finance love to refer to as budgeting. Now, I know it's a, it's, a, it's a word that not a lot of people enjoy, but I think a really good way to get started is identify your budget. How much money do you have? How much time do you need it to last? And what exactly is it going to need to cover? Um, and I think that last piece is probably one of the most important things to, to get out there as a family, you know, decide what exactly the, the student is going to be responsible for. Are they responsible for books, entertainment, their cell phone? Uh, if they incur any additional charges, are those their responsibility? And then going in ahead of time when everybody knows exactly what they're responsible for, the likelihood of achieving it is, is, is a little bit greater. Um, and then realistically, set that budget and stick to it. You know, I know it sounds so simple to do, but usually it's a little more difficult to do in practice. But the reality is if you know what your, your resources are, you know what your expenses are, and you know how long it needs to last, it really can be done. Right. And I think uh, our colleague Kathy Ruby has been on in the past talking about ways of just sort of being tough and, and saying no uh, when a student asks for more money for, for those weekend expenses. Um, do you have a particular tool that you like to use when you're putting a budget together? Is it a, a spreadsheet, uh, like a Google Doc or, or Excel spreadsheet, or just on old-fashioned pen and paper? Um, is there something that tends to work better for those who maybe yeah, don't have so a system yet? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the user, right? So, you know, I, I, I will not show my age and tell you how I do it, but, <laughs> but there are a <laughs> tremendous number of apps out there. I mean, all of us are, are sort of, you know, inclined towards our phones. So download an app and just... Plug your numbers into your app. I mean, you could do something as basic as a simple calculator app where you say, okay, this is what I've got, this is what I need, this is how long it has to stretch. Or you could do something even more complex where you actually enter your regular expenses or all of your expenses and watch sort of your balance decline yourself. Um, you can use most, of, most bank sites will allow you to do the same thing on their, on their, mobile, on their mobile app. So if, if an app is the way that you're most inclined to go, absolutely go for it. Um, you know, if, if you have a, a young person, a student heading off to college who does not know how to do any of this sort of old-fashioned manually, you may want to spend a minute teaching them how to do that and then let them rely yeah. on their, their technology solution. Um, but I think whatever works for that person is what they're going to stick to. Um, 
Yeah, I happen to live in an area um, where there are five colleges within a few mile radius of where I live, and and you know we see a lot of students really sort of struggling to to make it through this semester, looking for odd jobs and things like that. So I think anything that they can do to try to manage what they have to start is is sort of the the, the best sort of process. Right, and you find you know students are spending so much time doing their AP calculus homework in high school, uh, focusing on that type of math that sometimes they don't stop and, and figure out some of this basic basic math and, and planning that they can use that is going to really help them on uh, through their their college years and then on on later beyond. Um, Absolutely. So I've established my expenses, right? I know that I need this much for books, this not much for my cell phone, um, and I look at it and I say, well, you know, that doesn't look too bad. I think you know I can I can manage that, but over the first you know, a few weeks of school, I start to notice that my money is going faster than I would have expected, that there are un- unseen expenses that are out there that maybe I didn't budget for in the beginning. So how do I go about minimizing those kinds of expenses creeping into to my, uh, to my budget? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, some of that is going to be discipline. You know, and, and, and even as adults, we, we struggle with discipline. So realistically, I think the first bet is, you know, as, as, as a student, focus on what your responsibilities are. And for parents out there who might be listening, and, and you referred earlier to, to, to the reference I was going to make also, and that is, if you have to say no, say no. You know, sometimes a little tough love goes a lot further than, uh, than giving in. So if you're finding that you're, 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 you know, your students aren't quite doing what they need to do and you're needing to deposit more money than you had expected, you know, drop the hammer and say, okay, this is it. Um, but from, from the student perspective, be cognizant of what you're doing. What are those extra expenses? You know, did you happen to order, you know, pizza four nights last week? When realistically you live on a meal plan and there's probably significant options. I know for a fact that when I went to college, meal plans were pretty much limited to walking into the dining hall at mealtimes and that was it. That's no longer the case. You know, I live very close to a university where there is 24-hour dining services. If that's a part of what your parents or you have already paid for, use it. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure the pizzeria up the street is probably more convenient. They deliver or you might like it better, but it's going to cost you more. So it, it may sound sort of nonsense, you know, obvious, but really think about where you're spending when you don't need to. Um, you know, are you buying books and supplies that you don't really need? You know, are things available online? You know, obviously the old adage of, you know, are used books a possibility? You know, again, whatever the student is most comfortable with in terms of technology versus other solutions should be what they do, but they can always look for, for ways to minimize costs there as well. Yeah, for me, it was always the hot cake house. That was a 24-hour <laughs> hot cakes and bacon and eggs. Yeah. We could go there to it. I mean, just too much of that uh, for yeah, a lot of reasons. I went to school in New York State, and, and you know, establishments closed a lot later than uh, they do, did where I lived, so that, that 24-hour diner when leaving you know, places of, of leisure at four in the morning became really available. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that can be really terrific uh, and terrible <laughs> all at the same time. And, w- you know, one of the things actually that, that my dad has done when I first started working on budgeting was let's not start with what you can afford to spend so much as let's just at least track your expenses. What are yeah. you spending your money on? Write down everything you're buying, make a list so that I know that if I have to refill your account, you have to show me where that money is going. And we can have a serious conversation about all those hot cake house items that are showing up there on your, right. on your line items. Yep. Absolutely. You know, another trick that I have found, and, and I, I've told this story for many, many years, usually in front of mixed groups of parents and students. Parents think it's fabulous. Students glare. 
Um, but I've been out of college for a long time. But when I was in college, my family had a pretty strict rule for both my, my siblings and myself that during the summer or during the academic year into the summer, we had to save a certain amount of money by the end of the summer or we simply weren't going to go back to school because we had our own expenses we had to cover and we had to save a certain amount. Um, I'm sure the amount now would be greater than then, but in my senior year, I had to save $3,000 during the summer. And I vividly remember being around late July, the bill came, and I wasn't even close. And my father said, well, what's going to happen here? And I said, well, what do you mean? I'm a senior. And he was like, yeah, no. And and suddenly I took a lot of double shifts at the restaurant I was working at. My second (laughs) job became a, a, a more primary job, and I made it. But the irony is, you know, here I am faced with something that I thought I was going to get around and, and didn't. And, and, and it, again, it was a long time ago. So if I could do that then, I've got to believe there are options now. So I think that's even something that families can think about is, you know, it may be a little late for this year, but next year set a limit or set a goal and work towards that goal and know that that's something that has to last for, for the course of the semester or the sure. year, depending on what they agree. So, so let's say that you do that. So you get the, the amount that you need to save and you're in the midst of your semester and your dad let you go back to school, which is great. But now you're finding that you're, you're coming up a little bit short in the middle of the semester. What yep. can students do when they're on campus and they need a little bit of extra spending money? That's a great question. I think you know, one of the things I saw working on college campuses as long as I have is that students don't always take advantage of what's out there. You know, while I, I definitely encourage more emphasis on um, their academics and the other things they can be doing on campus, there's a tremendous amount to be said for working while in school. Um, obviously, if you have federal work-study eligibility, take advantage of that. That's, that's money that's being made available to you that others don't have access to. Um, so certainly you want to be sure that if that's something that's available to you, you're taking advantage of that. There are a lot of studies that show that, that students that work on campus 10 to 12 hours a week tend to be more organized. They tend to um, do a little bit better because they have you know, probably improved time management skills. Um, if work-study isn't an option, are there other on-campus employment opportunities? Um, are there research opportunities? Um, again, I'm very fortunate to live in an area where we're surrounded literally by colleges and universities, and, and most of my friends and, and, and myself and, uh, and my family employ students to do significant things for us, uh, childcare, music lessons, coaching, tutoring. So if you're not finding what you're looking for on campus, check community boards. Um, I happen to be able to, to go onto the university websites in my surrounding area to post what I need filled. Um, so we have filled childcare positions um, just through posting on, on the board. So if you're really finding that you're short of money and you're not currently you know, employed while at school, think about it. Um, there's a lot that you can do. It, it could be things you know, that you're interested in, um, but you're certainly not limited in any way. Um, you know, everybody always says, well, I don't want to work in the dining hall. And, and I can assure you that is definitely not the only option, um, especially considering that you know, there are probably things in the community that you'd never even thought of. Yeah, I think that, that's all. That's great. There are so many opportunities, and, and I think I hope students will look for those. Um, really quickly before we run out, I, I know we've got probably a lot of parents of high school seniors out there, and they're thinking right now, okay, how do I get my student ready for next summer when he comes back from his first year of, of college um, or, or the summer after that? So how do pl- families plan ahead for the future? What are, what are just a couple of quick tips that you would give um, for yeah, students I think, to Yeah, you know, about? I think we've touched on a few of them, and I think it is, you know, even before they start, um, you know, their summer job, 
decide how much they may need to save. You know, decide what you think would be reasonable for them to, to cover expenses during the course of the year. Do it together. When you have built buy-in, it's much more likely that it's going to occur. Um, think about the things that they're going to be responsible for when they are at school. Are they going to have to pay their cell phone bill? Are they paying their car insurance? Um, make those decisions in advance. It's a lot easier to have those conversations when you've all, all agreed to it. Um, and then, like we said earlier, be steadfast. You know, if you've said, I'm not paying for certain things, then don't. Um, but I think really that's a good way to get started. It's just, again, plan ahead, establish the budget, um, and, then, and then stick to it. I love this. This is sort of a common refrain that I hear from all my finance co- colleagues. Have the conversation early, plan ahead, be ready to say no. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, Stacey, uh, for coming by. Uh, and, and all my guests who were able to join me today. Um, I hope you all enjoyed the lineup change we brought to you this afternoon. I certainly enjoyed being your host for the first time. Uh, over the next few weeks, you can expect a handful of return appearances from me and another surprise guest host who can take you through college admissions um, with expert advice. Uh, next week, Beth returns for a deep dive into the UC application, a must-listen not only for California residents, but for any students considering applying to this nine-university system. Uh, We'll also talk about ROTC and opportunities for students to leverage their ROTC experience into extra scholarship money for college. Uh, Just a reminder, you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can download every show for free on iTunes. Uh, We'll also see you here live every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 Pacific. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.